John Lennon had said Beatles were more popular than Jesus. I did not have record collection of Beatles recordings, but I did have one recording of the chipmunks sing the Beatles. And I had to go, right? <laughs> I, I went out in my backyard and I smashed the chipmunks singing the Beatles against the pine tree <laughs> to the glory of God. In retrospect, <laughs> from a purely musical standpoint, that was still the right call. <laughs> Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. All right, all right, all right. Welcome back to the podcast. It'd been a hot minute since I'd tried my Matthew McConaughey impression. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah. It was it was it was worth it. It was worth another go round. If, if for no other, just for Jonathan Wilson, I know you're listening. So this is my shout out to you, bro. And I'm still hoping that I'm just hoping against hope that at some point he does run for governor in your in your lovely state of Texas. I'd vote for the dude. I will, I will literally change where I live to vote for him. All right, come on over. Anyway, <laughs> we should probably introduce ourselves. This is uh, this is the podcast. <laughs> well, five minutes in, we'll go. Hey, by the way, uh, this is not church. Uh, we are here today with uh, your lovely host and co-host, or I guess you're the host, John. I'll be the co-host today. How's that? So, right. John and Nat Turney um, from Texas and Northern California, respectively, and. We are here today with a uh, with an awesome guest. We just can't wait to to introduce him to you. We're going to have a really good conversation, man. I feel like already just from just our chit chat we had before we started that it's it's going to go all over the place, man. So uh, let me introduce you guys to Charles Marsh. He is a professor of religious studies at the University of Virginia and the director of the Project on Live Theology. He's the author of seven previous books, including God's Long Summer: Stories of Faith and Civil Rights, which won the 1998 Grammeyer Award in Religion. I probably butchered that name, but we'll go with it, right? <laughs> Pretty good. I got a, I got a semi thumbs up. Good. Um, let's see. Marsh was also the recipient of Guggenheim Fellowship in 2009 and the 2010 Ellen Maria Gorenson Berlin Prize Fellowship at the American Academy in Berlin. He also, and he lives in Charlottesville, Virginia. His latest book is called Evangelical Anxiety, a Memoir. And that's really kind of what we're going to focus our attention on because uh, those two words, sadly, evangelical and anxiety, have seemed to go hand in hand way more often than not. So um, anyway, without any further ado, welcome to the podcast, Charles. What's up, man? I'm doing great. Thanks for um, uh, reaching out to me, Nat and John. You know, John, I've been a, a fan of your band for a long time. I, I think the first time I heard ZZ Top, I was a junior <laughs> in high school and snuck into the Laurel, Mississippi Rec Center. Even though I knew um, rock was the devil's music, um, you know, I uh, sort of the courage to cross over to the other side. So it's a real pleasure. Yeah. <laughs> so at some point, John and I will absolutely know. So what you don't know, what's funny is John and I grew up playing in bands together. I'm not surprised. And John, and John plays bass and I play guitar. So he could be uh, Billy Gibbons and I could be the other, what, who's, I don't even know these, I don't know these guys' names. But at our, our, our goal is when we turn about 60, right, John? Yeah. Uh, you're just hearing about this now. I'm just telling you. Uh, oh, okay. so we'll, form, we'll form as easy top cover band. Okay. Uh, by then, our our beard should be majestic enough, and we can uh, we can we can get it going. We can go out and sing in Lagrange. Yeah. You know, for about half, for about half a second uh, when Billy Gibbon died, I was like, I'm a bass player. I've got yeah. the beard. Should ask for a. a an audition, but whatever. <laughs> yeah. Alas, it was not to be. No. Well. 
Absolutely, yeah. So, uh, so before we descend too far into the silliness, because John and I are easily distracted by silly things, we just uh, we just let's get going. We'll ask you about the question that we normally ask our guests, or our, our sort of jumping off question would be just to take a second to tell us about yourself, a little bit about your faith journey. And I know again, that's a loaded question, but as much or as little as you want to say, just to kind of bring us up to speed. Yeah, it's a thrill to be on your show. Yeah, I was born in the deep uh, evangelical South and sort of came of age as a Baptist minister's son in a small town in South Mississippi called Laurel that was, at the time we moved there, known as the epicenter of Southern terrorism. It was Mm -hmm. the home to the white knights of the Ku Klux Klan in Mississippi. And in the late 1960s, the town was crawling with FBI agents who were trying to put the Klan out of business and to prosecute numerous uh, murder and terrorism charges that had still not been uh, closed. And uh, the, 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 the sort of the sense of the town that I absorbed as, you know, a boy on the, on the verge of, of puberty was one of sort of ambient terror and the um, in the in the town itself, because of the of the mandates of these so-called you know Christian nationalist uh, terrorists, but it was also hyped by the you know the, the fundamentalist Christianity with heavy dose of Jesus is coming, get ready, it's the last days, and you'll probably be left behind, even though you have an intense devotional life and are in church every time the doors are open. Uh, and, and that was sort of my, the place where I, you know, came of age uh, spiritually. And so, you know, that, that kind of almost psychedelic kind of dialectic between, you know, the, the fears of the judgment, the fears of the outside world, the fears of all the late 60s coolness, the fears of, of, of the violent South, but also the kind of exhilarations that you find, you know, in evangelicalism. I, I, you know, it, it's, we, we talk a lot about the, you know, the abuses of the evangelical subculture and its pathologies. But, you know, if you came of age in that world, you know that it's, I mean, can I say this? Yes. Word? It's, it's kind of a mind fuck as well. <laughs> in, yeah. in, in a multitudinous sense. I mean, this, this, you know, the, 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 the ecstasies of the, of the, of the campfire and of the youth group and the passions and energies that are conjured in feeling called and, and, and feeling like you're summoned to this great, you know, historical mission. And, and, you know, that sets up a kind of mentality with these really hard kind of binaries that are also so intense, the torment and the ecstasy that kind of, you know, conditions a lot of the struggles that will come. You know, I think it's true of any social movement, of any, you know, kind of religious experience that, you know, you, you come to the you come to the moment with this sense of heightened expectations of what, what you'll receive, that, that you'll be transformed, that there'll be a kind of magical refiguration of the world. 
and that you're going to be on the front lines of history. You know? <laughs> and at some point, you know, this the sheer ordinariness of human existence, you know, hits you like a ton of bricks. And that for me, you know, is, is the moment when you've got to, you've got to, you've got to uh, engage in a reckoning um, and you've got to figure out how you're going to make your way into a world that is neither overcharged with meaning or, you know, with terror. That's, mundane and that's ordinary that's finite that's mortal in any case i was part of the first integrated class in the state of mississippi which was exhilarating and intense um eventually i um made my way sort of into a more how shall i say ecumenical evangelicalism my father was a son of the south and he had, you know, all of the baggage of white supremacy ringing in his ears, but he also had a real restlessness. And so in the late 90s, even though he's from Mississippi, we were in these small Mississippi towns, he got caught up in the Jesus movement. You remember that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was, you know, it was, it's, it's often forgotten, but it was, a, it was a real and I think sincere experiment in creating a kind of evangelical counterculture. And for a while, you know, through the work of, you know, Francis Schaeffer and singing of Larry Norman and, you know, those folk, there was a scene and we we kind of inhabited that scene. We went to Switzerland and lived in these Christian communes for five years. We went out to the West Coast for the big rallies. We went to Expo, was it Expo 70 or 72, the big thing in, in Dallas, you know, it's like the Christian Woodstock. And so, you know, there was this kind of enlarging of at least the regional southern kind of stranglehold that enabled me to get a glimpse of something larger, something more diverse, something more inclusive. But, you know, eventually those those even more generous, um, expansive convictions of, you know, conservative Christian evangelicalism proved to be difficult to sustain. And uh, I went to a Christian college, went to graduate school at Harvard Divinity School, and then at University of Virginia. And it was really during those years that the ideas that had sustained me in some form or fashion came into a a, a really deep kind of period of testing. It was also during those years that I began to battle my first uh, anxiety episodes and to try to then negotiate the anxiety and the mental distress that I was suddenly dealing with and that at times felt immobilizing with the kind of Christian guidelines and ideas surrounding mental suffering, mental health or more broadly, suffering that I inherited as a child and that ultimately proved to be, for me, fairly useless in finding healing and beginning to ask questions about, to me, who am I? What is, what is the meaning of a life? Why am I 
this young evangelical man who pursued holiness, you know, who people would look at as, you know, a rising, you know, man of God within the evangelical culture. Why am I completely overwhelmed by mental suffering in, in ways that I actually couldn't even talk about? I was afraid to even share my story, my suffering, because it seemed so at odds with everything I believed about the Holy Spirit and about, you know, the healing uh, energies of, of devotional life. Um, that's just kind of a, the background of, you know, what brought me to this book and, and to this conversation. Wow, that's, there's, there's so much there that, that we, can, we can jump off from. One of the things I've noticed, and maybe you can comment on this a little bit, is that, go back to our very first podcast interview, John. Well, not our very first, maybe our second or third, Michelle Collins, who's a good friend of, the, of, of, of ours mm-hmm. and written a couple books. And, but, but it struck me that when she started talking about her own issues with mental health, she had to do everything in secret, lest her church people find out. So in fact, she kept it from her husband, I think, if I remember correctly, that she was actually taking some antidepressants or something, some sort of medication, you know, that, you know, again, we, we would never look down our nose at somebody taking, you know, antibiotics to get rid of an infection or, right, you. popping an aspirin or a Tylenol because they got a headache and suddenly we get real, we get real judgy and real snarky if people start using medication to level out their chemistry. And anyway, so when she, when she was discovered, she went off all of her medications cold turkey which is a big, huge no-no and, and, and became uh, very suicidal. Anyway, so, so this is my question. First of all, what the fuck? Um, <laughs> second of all, that's, I guess that's more of a comment than a question. But <laughs> why do you think it is that the church, and, I don't, and, and again, I mean this in, in a very large sense, we, paint, we, we do tend to paint with broad strokes here sometimes, and um, at least we acknowledge we're doing this. So the church writ large has tended to want to handle issues of mental health either by over-spiritualizing them or by completely diminishing them. What, what can we do better? Is there something we, I don't know, I, I, guess, I guess that's just, I want your commentary on, on what your experience has been with that. It is a, at its heart, a what the fuck matter. Um, it's also, you know, a matter of utmost seriousness. Yeah, absolutely. We're in, we're in the midst of a national mental health epidemic with suicides off the charts. And as a teacher, as a professor, you know, I've never seen so many students break down under depression and anxiety as I have the past several years. And within you know, the, the, the Christian community, to the extent to which I inhabit that in some form today, um, I am, you know, at times reassured that there is some space now for real, clear, unflinchingly honest attention to mental health and its conditions and its sources of healing. But nonetheless, there is still a very large sector of the evangelical subculture and, you know, of Christian um, churches in, in general that that retains this this fear of the psyche. I mean, it is a Christian fear of the psyche and that um, manifests itself by, you know, suspicion with secular therapies or any kinds of uh, psychotherapies that are not 
strictly align with a kind of biblical protocol. And even in cases where, you know, a Christian therapist might allow or encourage the use of medication, in too many cases, there's still this kind of nagging sense that, but that the real problem, you know, is not biochemical. The real problem is not about, you know, the, the, the psychodynamic sources of your anxiety. The real problem is that you you know, you just don't, you just, your relationship with God is just not where it should be. Right, right. <laughs> and when yeah. I first was hit with this anxiety episode that was so intense and so overpowering in the fall of 1981, I had no resources at all as a thoughtful, fairly cosmopolitan, fairly well-read evangelical to understand what was happening to me. And so I knew that there was a really excellent mental health division at the university. I knew students from my dorm who had gone and benefited. But I also knew that was for non, you know, that, that's not something Christians can do. And so what I fell back on were these strategies that we really have to learn that would tell a suffering Christian or person, embrace your suffering as a gift of God. Lean into it. Find a way to thank God for your suffering. And, And a book that I know has almost canonical power within Christian communities, but that I read and that I found to be a source of unending misery was Oswald Chambers, My Utmost for His Highest. Yeah, and right. I'm sorry to say that because so many people read that devotionally. And yet it is all about thanking God for the wounds of our suffering, asking God to make our life um, um, a, a testimony of, of suffering that in turn hollows hollows us out, you know, creates an empty vessel. Yikes. And in our suffering, we become empty. And then God... So, so all of these ideas were ones that I had inherited. And, you know, for seven... My God, for six or seven years, I I lived with these symptoms untreated, um, trying in some ever desperate way to find healing through these biblical regimens that I somehow pulled out of my, you know, Christian vocabulary and that only made things worse and loaded me with more guilt because I wasn't, you know, somehow strong enough. Christian enough to break through into that glorious space where we feel that our suffering has now united us with God and some fantastical thinking, of course, that is completely unrealistic and only damaging. But but my, my question is this then, as you're talking, I'm thinking to myself, this was the vocabulary that John and I were raised with too, by the way. And so, and, and not necessarily by parents, but certainly by ch- pastors and churches that we were involved in. And, and it's bled into our, you know, into, into churches everywhere. But so that notion of, of hollowing you out, 
so that you can be basically what an empty template then that God can fill and use. Can that not be? I mean, to me, that seems like a major source of, 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 of anxiety for folks. Listen, you don't get to be you. In fact, God doesn't like you. Let's go ahead and get rid of all of you. Fill you up with Jesus so you can walk around being, you know, rather than take, you know, and, and I get that there's biblical language for this that says essentially that we are, you know, that we're on to take the take on the mind of Christ and we're supposed to do these things. But I can't in a million years think that that meant that God created billions of individuals to then have them turn into Stepford Christians. <laughs> well, just rock the same haircut, wear the same clothes, do the same things and utter the same inanities at each other. So can that be a source of that tension then of not even at your core, knowing who you really are or being being allowed to embrace who you really are? Oh, hell yeah. And <laughs> if I could be indulged to read a very short passage. Yeah, please that do. Is That'd be great. Pertinent to, to this point. And it's the, the first chapter in the book, which was at one point 15 pages, 20 pages, that went through a million drafts um, until it, it seemed clear that it should be no longer than 300 words. Right. And it's a chapter called Martin Luther on Prozac, and it's really a prelude. And um, I, I read it, you know, not, not to um, luxuriate in my... In my um, and my beautiful prose, uh, but because I think it's the most instructive thing that I might add to the point you just eloquently stated. This is just about three or four minutes. Sometime after my family moved to Charlottesville on a mild April evening, I sat in my accustomed pew beneath the Tiffany stained glass window in the downtown church the church had recently launched an evening service intended for students and seekers with tasteful acoustic praise songs and, and the fellowship supper and the refractory afterward prepared by a local farm-to-table caterer. That evening, I was treated to a sermon on the 16th century German reformer Martin Luther that included this pastoral word to the people. It is my hope and prayer that every person in this congregation suffer a complete nervous breakdown before they reach middle age. He may have said before their 30th birthday, I can't recall. I had recently rounded 40, but didn't think of myself as middle-aged. I'd only been teaching for a decade, free of doctoral studies, and gainfully employed, and I could still run with the kids at North Ground Gym in afternoon pickup games. The preacher, an amiable fellow a few years younger than me, had briskly approached the pulpit in crisp khaki trousers and a vineyard vines buttoned down and begun the homily by surmising that if Martin Luther had taken antidepressants to quell his violent mood swings and inner torment, I am like ripe shit and the world is a gigantic asshole, Luther might bark out. The world would have never known a Protestant Reformation, its great insights, justification by faith alone, sola scriptura, the priesthood of ordinary believers, would have been lost to recalibrated serotonin levels and steadier nerves. It was a sermon I knew I would not soon forget, the gospel of the shattered self, where the anxiously ill submit graciously to the whip. By the time the priest concluded that our lives are not a journey, they are a train wreck. 
in our quoting journey to scattered laughter, I felt the old rumblings of dread begin their slow rise to a symptom. The whisper folk benediction be damned. I whisked my wife and children out the side exit and Ricky Bob, the minivan, two miles back to our house and there hurtled upstairs to my medicine bag, shook free a lorazepam and placed the round white pill under the tongue. The body of Christ broken for you, I thought, waiting before the bathroom mirror for a direct hit to the blood and the amen I needed most. Yes, this trope of the shattered self, that our relationship with God, that Christian existence depends first and foremost of destroying our interiority, of living always and ever at wit's end. Oh my God, that's, that's it, man. You've named it. Well, remember all those times we we sit and you know I, I remember sitting in because we we gravitated towards um, sort of more Pentecostal type churches later in life, right? So more charismatic, spirit filled, and I've lost track of the times. I'm, I'm a, I was a worship leader, I was a youth pastor, I've been all those things, right? And I'm leading these kids in worship as we're getting ready to go to camp or something, and I'm and we're just crying out for them to be desperate, you know, and we just want them to be desperate. We just want them to be broken. You know, we really were calling for their brokenness so that they, so that in their brokenness, God can come in and fill up those cracks and fix everything and make you all right. Um, and looking back, I can hardly say the words out loud, actually, because I'm, you know, I'm ashamed on, on the one hand, because it was, you know, it did harm. You know, I've actually talked to some kids who are former, you know, students, students of mine who were, you know, that who I was their youth pastor and I've had to have some heart to hearts and go, man, I, I did my best, you know, there was no malice or anything in anything I ever told you, but I think I might've fed you some bad information at one point, um, reading out of the playbook I was given. Um, but there's so much of this turmoil that comes in and it feels like, you know, I don't know. It just feels like, especially the way that, you know, Western evangelical theology is, is, is articulated. It just seems like an anxiety minefield. Like there's just no possible way, right? Yeah, you add that, add to that the parental mandate that is still present in all too many Christian circles to break the will of the child. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We were told by my mother-in-law, God bless her soul. I have four very strong-willed children. And I had the, I had the presence of mind to tell her to pound sand nicely when she told me I needed to break their wills. I'm like, oh, well, what the hell do I want to break their will for? What, what, that's that's ridiculous. No, we don't want to break their wills. Jesus calls them. Jesus summons the disciples to new life. Just walk. Yeah. Just follow. This is this is not. You, know, you need to go and lacerate yourself. You need to go and embark on this journey of self mortification. No, just follow me in this joyful, right. eventful, unscripted adventure. But isn't that the thing too? And, I'll, and John, you're going to chime in as soon as I just said, so this thought's going to go out of my head in a second if I don't get to it. But um, the other thing that, 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 that strikes me about what you started earlier saying is that we have set, we've set people up for what we tell them will be a glorious adventure, right? We, we, we tell our kids they're going to be world changers. Um, and we've never once taught them to embrace the beauty 
in living a life well. You know, we've, we've, we've tried to put so much spiritual value on every single thing. Every, every kid I know who went into ministry, um, man, those are, those are some anxious people because if they don't have immediate success, if they don't have a platform with, you know, 10,000 YouTube and, you know, Instagram followers, if they're not constantly putting out content, they, they're missing the boat. And there's so much anxiety in, in trying to attain some form of Christian celebrity, which, cause that seems to be the norm, right? But it just, I don't know, man, it, that the, the one thing I did ever get from Oswald Chambers, and I do remember reading because my, my father loves that book and quotes from it quite a bit. But I do remember him writing an entry about, he, he called it the, the, the drudgery of life, you know, yeah. And, and, yeah. and not essentially not discounting what happens in, in, in the mundane. And in the everyday, and and I, I did find some value in that. There's a whole bunch of that that I that I cringe. I agree, at. and I'll look, I don't want to be accused of vilifying Chambers. What I want to say is that reading Chambers refracted through my own acute mental distress as a possible remedy of my anxieties was not a helpful way to go. <laughs> yeah, I get that for sure. No, and I, I, no, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't vilify, nor would I lionize. I mean, I, yeah. I, I think he was, you know, a product of his time, and I still think um, I read all of that skeptically anyway. So yeah. let me yeah. just put it. But anyway, John, I cut you off twice, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna get your way, man. Well, I mean, first of all, this is this is all somewhat triggering for me. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm sitting back here, like remembering right those times where I'm sitting in. Sunday service and hearing all this bullshit. And so what, what's hard about it is it's so baked into the culture. It's so baked into the, the, the fundamentalist evangelical church that this idea that you're supposed to completely empty yourself so you can be refilled with the, with the presence of God and Jesus. But the problem is, and the fucked up part about this is yeah. then you leave and you mess up and you do things that wouldn't, that Jesus wouldn't do, but Sure as hell, you're not going to tell anybody that you did that because you're now filled with Jesus. So in some way, you failed again. And then, of course, you failed again and you failed yeah, again you just... and you failed again and you failed again to the point where you just become a complete fake, right? And you become a completely different person. So I became two different people. I was the person that church saw and I made sure that that person was as holy as could be. And then there was that other person who was dying on the inside and seeking whatever I could to fill that space of emptiness and horror about myself, right? So it'd be at alcohol or drugs mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. um, whatever, right? Yeah, I, I, I think that, you know, that impulse to perform the role of our idealized Christian right. um, is, you know, a recipe for mental torment and for, you know, kind a kind of spiral. And I get it, man. I, it's my story too. And I think, I mean, part of this is just resisting the perverse theological substructures of that idea and, you know, embracing a more incarnational Christianity of reconnecting with our uh, Jewish heritage as Christians, in which there is a, a, an affirmation of worldly 
passion and love in which there is an affirmation of created integrity, which is an affirmation of just inevitably screwing things up, but, you know, being loved and used by God nonetheless. Part of it, too, is to resist that what you call that that sort of that, that sort of strategy to, to break the, the, the will of the Christian because you know that's the strategy of totalitarianism. And I think what I eventually discovered was that the, the youth pastors who were always saying the, the, the this craziest shit to us in youth group meetings and you know that the celebrity ministers who would come through town with their spectacular and sensational messages and all of that that um that they had a personal investment if not a financial investment if not a brand investment if not a political investment and in keeping us broken right <laughs> right right yeah and you know if we are emptied then we don't become vessels of the divine will. We become the vessels of whatever powers are nearby clamoring for our attention, demanding control, political, cultural powers. Right, right. Yeah. And so it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a mindset, it's a theology that, that, that's not only observable, you know, as this kind of interior drama with its own tragic results. But I think it underwrites the whole monstrosity of, you know, the American evangelical, you know, right-wing social and political movement as well. But that's driven by evangelical anxiety as much as it's driven by the will to power. In fact, the will to power is in some way a manifestation of evangelical anxiety that, that, that we're so tormented by these unknown desires and libidinous energies that we turn to a Donald Trump as a kind of calming, <laughs> stabilizing Figure. I know that may sound counterintuitive, but listen, you know, Donald Trump may be a slow-moving apocalypse, but this is a man who doesn't seem to have ever worried about the day of the Lord or the second coming of Jesus or being left behind or the rapture. And so our openness enables the, this kind of servitude to the principalities yeah. and powers. It also seems to me, though, that some of that anxiety within the evangelical world, and I agree with you, by the way, I do believe that, that to me it's, it's, it's anxiety and insecurity, but because in their, in, in their honest moments, I think they have to see their influences waning. I think they have to understand that their stranglehold on religion is, is loosening somewhat and, and that causes them to lash out and, 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 and grapple for more, right? Grasp for more of that power. Try to hold on to what they've got. They're so used to being the, the dominant part of this culture. Um, it's, it's the same kind of conversation I have with white folks who are so concerned that they're going to be, you know, I, I, I wish I could remember who, who put the meme up, but it was, you know, somebody wringing their hands about, you know, at some point, white people are going to be the minority and, uh, you know, somebody in the minority saying, oh, why? Does, do minorities get treated badly or something here? 
do tell, you know, so like it's telling that you understand that's what we do. But I see that, you know, that I see that in the, in the sort of prevailing victim mentality within evangelicalism. Everyone's always out to get them. The government's always got some, some nefarious plot to strip them of even more religious rights, even as they dial us back to 1950, whatever. I, I'm, I'm really concerned. And I don't want, didn't necessarily want to get into politics on this unless we want to, but that concerns me more than anything that there's a member of Congress who just got elected who is on the record recently as saying the church should be directing the state. The state should not be telling the church what to do. And to thunderous applause and to a reelection, she said this in a church where she's con- she's convinced that the church is actually supposed to dictate how the state runs. Yeah, you know, I, I really think um, that the old Southern way of life, which is what we describe, you know, the culture of, of white Christian segregation that yep. existed, you know, before 54, but really before 64, 65, 68, um, did not disappear. It became the American way of life. Yeah, exactly. And the same kind of paranoia that we lived with, which was an acute regional paranoia, we were we were terrified of every foreign influence and and obsessed with with our purity. You know, whether it was the purity of the body, the purity of the church, the purity of the white race, the purity of our region that God had sort of ordained. And Northerners and liberals and the media and the Hollywood and rock stars and secularism and you name it. These were all threatening forces that were seeking nefariously to corrupt uh, our soul. And if we were corrupted, if we were penetrated by these uh, outside forces, we would not only lose our purity, but attendantly we would become unraveled and lose our identity and, and lose uh, our integrity. That didn't go away. That just became now a national habit. No, and I think you're right about that. Yeah. And, and then we are shocked that what the church has done is raised up a generation of people with anxiety levels that are not manageable, who go through severe depression on a regular basis, because all we all we were preached at was end times theology, uh, that Russia was the evil empire. That at some point, probably why we're sleeping. I don't know why they always had to make it why we're sleeping. You know, so that makes us afraid of the dark, afraid of the boogeyman, all that bullshit. But at some point, the, the bombs are flying, and that's going to start the Armageddon, right? And and they're shocked that we are a generation of people who are just scared shitless. Yeah. Well, and don't forget, John, if you make it, if you make it through all that, you still might wind up in a very real hell of eternal conscious torment. So how do you not raise up a bunch of anxiety ridden people when, when they're literally dancing on a precipice all the time between, you know, their immortal souls being cast into, you know, I'll tell you one thing and I don't, not to make light of, 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 but my mental health improved when I, when I jettisoned all that bullshit theology. And how did you do that? I mean, I, how did you jettison all that bullshit theology? So for me, it was a, it was a, it was a matter of being willing to ask the questions, mm-hmm. coming to terms in my own mind. I, I tell my congregation all the time that there are things I believed that my heart knew that my, that my mind took a while to catch up with. Mm-hmm. So I started to question the doctrine of, of hell. Mm-hmm. In my own heart, I never preached it because I never really believed it. 
but the Bible said it, so I had to reckon with it. Um, I didn't really ever buy off on the rapture a ton, but I had to preach it, or I had to at least reckon with it because the Bible says so. And so when I finally found resources of people who, lo and behold, by the way, you know, for the first 200 years of the you know, of the Christian church, obviously way, way longer than that when in terms of the rapture, but but that that was not the way the afterlife was was portrayed at all. Turns out the early church fathers were by and large universalists. Mm. Um, mm. And big heavy hitter names like Gregory of Nyssa and, yeah. you know, Clement. And so we, anyway, so, but but not surprisingly, none of that was taught in my Bible school. Yeah. We don't, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't learn about the church fathers, the desert fathers. We didn't, you know, Nicene, post-Nicene. None of that stuff was, it was all contemporary, you know, it was for a, anyway, so that was how I did it. Um, Your mileage may vary um, if you're listening and you're wondering, um, having, having access to that armed me with, with enough reason for myself. Does that make sense to go, okay. Oh, I'm not the only one who's thought this. Oh, that's great. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And raising our children, not with the hope that all people shall be saved, but with an understanding of the necessity that most people shall be damned. Right, right. What the hell? Yeah, I mean, the the the, the one I get people with, and you know, when I do have conversations, and I, I'm, I'm beyond trying to convince anybody. Um, yeah. Usually by the time I'm having a conversation with somebody, they've worked through some of these questions on their own, and they just want, so, so, they're open to my suit. So what I ask them a lot of times, they're like, according to evangelical doctrine, you are a universalist, actually. You just believe that Adam universally damned everybody. So you're a universalist in that sense. And that we, you know, against my will, without any input on my part, I was, I was born and damned. And then Christ, the second Adam, who's supposed to undo the mess of the first Adam, is marginally successful at best. Actually, most would call him a, cl- a complete failure if, if you, be- if you believe their take on things. I love the Eastern, the Eastern Church's take on this. Whenever you read through like their Paschal homilies and you go, there's, there is this overwhelming theme of hope. Yeah. You know, and they're, they're not universal. Yeah, I mean, and, and um, you, you may have had, but if you haven't, I would highly recommend that you bring David Bentley Hart onto your show he is um, um he is we're desperately trying to get him scheduled um we, we've had a couple communications with him i think he's, he's a good friend of mine and i will tell him as soon as we get off that uh he he should um he should make a, a date to, to talk with you because his, his new book you know as an eastern orthodox theologian on universal salvation is a tour de force one of my favorite stories about one of my own theological heroes Karl Barth um, comes from uh, a childhood um, episode when his um, when he had, came back from Sunday school one Sunday morning, um, and at, at Sunday lunch uh, he was asked to you know, offer a report of what he had learned, and he proceeded to tell his mom and dad, who were both you know, believers and very active in the church, um, about a lesson on hell. The parents were both so mortified, they never let him return to Sunday school. And of course, some 30 years later, Karl Barth, in the second volume of his church dogmatic second part, two, volume two, section two, would fundamentally rewrite the doctrine of double damnation. So as to argue that grace is in fact irresistible, that the human know 
that the, that uh, our own uh, revolt or even denial of God um, is ultimately um, overwhelmed by the unending, uh, ever abundant love of God in Jesus Christ that cannot finally be resisted by any man, or woman, and child. It's an extraordinary argument that also seems to me grounded in biblical and historical sources. But you're right, you know, out of the gate, you know, some of my earliest and most vivid and most harrowing, you know, lessons about Christian existence were, you know, stories of hell. And not just, uh, and not just sort of as a punishing concept, but I mean, like really worried. Oh, yeah. No, we got, we got <laughs> all kinds of grotesque descriptions about what was going to happen there. You know, and by the way, you know, <laughs> to me, so I'm no longer on the fence about this. This child abuse. I used to say, well, it's kind of like, no, it is. When you, when you, when you subject a five or a six year old whose mind is still not fully formed yeah. to even contemplate death, let alone, you know, yeah, anyway, it, it strains credulity that, that people do this. But uh, and, and when I was making, and when I was beginning to reckon seriously with, with this theological abuse, a book that meant a lot to me um, was a book by a professor of, of psychology and religion at Princeton Theological Seminary named Donald Capps. He's, he's deceased. And it's a book called, I, I may have the title uh, mistaken, but I think it's called The Child Song on the Religious Abuse of Children. And it is such a pastorally wise and compassionate, but just... Um, pounding book on how um, a set of, of doctrine with hell at its center can wreak fundamental damage on the, the formation of, 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 of children. And I think one of the things that I, in my own story, that I have to identify as one of the most troubling um, aspects of my own evangelical childhood is and this this plays out in my has played out in my adult life and in relationships and I mean I still battle it today is diff the difficulty uh, to trust it's, it's it, you know I learned early on you know trust in the Lord with all thine heart lean not to thine own lean not to thine own understanding but all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths fine. I never learned anything about trusting yourself. And so, you know, as a young boy in puberty, when I began to grow and to expand and to feel the erotic desires that, you know, with my own children, I, I tried to kind of normalize, you know, in a, in a way that kept them, you know, um, attuned to, you know, um, their development, but also... And enabled them to sort of feel like they had some freedom within this space. You know, I began to treat my body as uh, a site of, of great distrust. And so, like, I remember, like, my first, when I started getting erections, <laughs> if I may, like, I was just so mortified that my, you know, penis was changing. I was getting pubic hair. I was getting erections. Like, what, what do I do about this? So I honestly began to think of my 
you know, dick, if you will, as a, as a, as a little beast. And so I had to um, chasten it. And I remember one night I was on, going on a date and I was so worried, uh, first of all, about getting an erection, which of course I would get in all kinds of unexpected times, but certainly on, on, a, on a date. <laughs> but I, not only did I, did I put on an extra like small pair of tidy whities but I put a jock strap on top of the tidy whities So it was like, it was like a restraining belt. It was like some, you know, free, uh, you know, it's like some bondage thing. Mm, that medieval I, chastity belt for men. No. So that, you know, the whole thing would be, and sometimes I would try to, when I would go out, actually tuck the penis in and under. So it was like stuck behind coming out, you know, the back. I was so terrified, like, you know, and oh my God, you know, no one, I had no one to tell me anything other than, you know, this is a real problem for you and Jesus, your, yeah. your dick and all the things it's, it's doing. Um, and, um, and so, yeah, trust. Like, yeah. We had, we had, I had no vocabulary for knowing how to trust my body. Yeah. To trust myself, to trust my mind. Well, yeah, but that, that brings us to the issue of purity culture, doesn't it? Brings us yeah. to the, the, all, the, all of the stuff that comes along with how we were sort of shamed about those processes. Um, good God. But, you know, you said you, you were never taught to trust yourself. I would argue you were taught explicitly not to trust yourself. I know I was. I was right. told over and over oh, again. Absolutely. Never, never forget that your heart, by the way, dude, it, it's deceitful. It is, it is, it is wicked above all things and, and beyond repair, depending on what translation of that verse you read. Um, and so fr from a very, very early age, we were told, and to me, that was, that was one of the greatest crimes committed against me because what, mm -hmm. it, what it did for me was, was, was make me second guess every intuitive thought I ever had and say, yeah. well, yeah, but you know, and, and, or every, every way my heart might want to try to lead me, well, I can't trust that. You know, uh, that's wicked, that's wicked and deceitful. I never really had the sort of, you know, boy the father talk, and my parents never really set me down to explain anything like this. But books or like cassettes would appear from time to time in my room. Oh, wow. Books like for boys only, yeah, you know. And, body. Here you go. Oh my God! And I remember this tape um, of a sermon by David Wilkerson of oh, you know, uh, God, God, Switch Band, yeah. and it was called "Parking at the Gates of Hell." Oh, sweet Jesus! And it was a very clear kind of delineation of the slippery slope that began with holding the hand of a girl, caressing a girl, kissing a girl, petting heavily with a girl, touching a girl, all the way to parking, fornication, and now you're, you're, you're descending, you know, into the, the, the... So there's this continuum between our, our natural bodily, beautiful bodily you know, functions and expressions. And not just the genitalia, but I mean, for me, when my anxiety episode, uh, my, my acute anxiety appeared in my early adult years, it was a constellation of symptoms that mimicked many of the worries I had about my evil, evil body, right. <laughs> my untrustworthy body. Yeah. Well, and so it's so, John and I have a, have a, a recollection. Do you remember this, John? So not Rich Wilkerson, but Rich Wilkerson's, I want to say his brother. No, I'm sorry, not David Wilkerson. So David Wilkerson had a brother named Rich. Rich Wilkerson, Rich Wilkerson was a traveling evangelist. 
um, much like David was. And Rich Wilkerson came to Eureka, John, when we were kids, and mom dragged us to a two or three day, what would you call it? Rally, I don't know, like a, like a, like a camp meeting kind of thing. He's the guy that like talked to everyone into like taking their records and stuff outside and burning them. Oh, yeah. He was the guy that preached against the evils of rock and roll music. He was the guy, this was in the, I would guess early 80s, 80, 82, whatever. Well, I was junior high, I think. And, um, and I was also probably pretty high at the time, but I don't know if you probably recall the, that, that was the era that everything was on because we were still listening to records. Everything was backward masked. Remember that? So yeah. he would, he had this little setup on stage where he had these records and he would spin them slowly backwards to reveal the demonic messages that were hidden within a hotel, you know, Hotel California or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Do you remember a guy named, uh, Don Larson? Um, he had, had some career in rock music and then he came to Jesus and he left the band, but he continued with this one man ministry of warning young people about rock and roll. So he would, he would, he would, in his you know, crusades, he would play like a riff, let's say, like the first, you know, bars of a lot of love. Right. And it's like, wow, that's great. And then he would stop and he would say, and you know, this is why, like, honestly, so many of those dynamic kind of um, riveting testimonies that I heard as a child um, that clustered around sex, drugs, and rock and roll and, and culminated in, in a conversion to Jesus were really kind of little porn um, um, feast for me. I mean, they were like, they were pornographic in nature. And so he would say, yeah, you think this is about a um, whole lot of love and someone loving another person. But let's listen to the lyrics. Every inch of my love. What kind of inch are we talking about? We're talking about the penetration. He wants to get every inch of his penis. And like, and we're like 12 years old. It's like, oh my God. You know, um, um, you know, everything within the musical vernacular is kind of attuned to to the uh, sexual impulse, and maybe maybe it is, but nonetheless, for, for Larson, um, you know, there was a way in which he and his you know comrades uh, really created uh, a kind of sexual imaginary for unwitting teenagers that otherwise we would have really not been able to find. Yeah, I would have, would have like right over oh, my yes. head. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 that would have made me go out and buy the record, by the way. Because <laughs> there was a song that John and I, I, I think it was from the Grease soundtrack that we were convinced at one point had a swear word in it. And we loved that song. It was like, it wasn't. <laughs> it was, he was saying the word shift. And we were like, he said shit. Woo-hoo! We love this song. It's the best. But it's, a, it, it's just a weird thing. In looking back, you know, in retrospect, it seems surreal, you know, it doesn't actually seem, doesn't seem realistic at all to me that we did that or that we were, you know, we, we took part in these kinds of crusades and, and what even is more earth shakingly weird is that, you know, I burned my records or I threw them away or we broke them. John took his out and shot him, I think. May, may I tell you that on the, on the more, uh, on the morning that, um, I, it came to my attention that, that John Lennon had said Beatles were more popular than Jesus something to that effect. I was a preacher kid in South Alabama. I did not have um, a record collection of Beatles recordings, but I did have one re- recording of the Chipmunks sing the Beatles. 
And, and I, went out, I, I went out in my backyard and I smashed the chipmunk singing the Beatles against the pine <laughs> tree to the glory of God. Now, in retrospect, from a purely musical standpoint, that was still the right call. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to find that record uh, not too long ago when I was writing this book. It's really expensive. Yeah, yeah, you're like, son of a bitch, that could have been a collectible. What was that? <laughs> I, that's okay. I, I, I got rid of a, a, a pretty, well, rare first issue, first pressing Beatles white album on white vinyl. So. <laughs> um, what did you do with it? Did you, did you burn it or did I you just throw it away? I couldn't bring myself to to destroy them. So I, I think I, I gave them to Goodwill or I took them to a local record store that bought used records. I remember burning things though. Yeah, but I remember I, 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 I was chastised for doing that because I was, I was just putting them back out in circulation. I'm like, you know what? And then, you know, it, these things come full circle. That was, it, it, that, but that was one of the things that, that struck me when you were speaking and you were talking about this sort of, you know, when you would go to these, these, these youth camps and youth meetings and, and the ways in which they can gin you up into it, you know, into almost a feeling of, of, of ecstasy. And they're really good at that, you know? And so they can take otherwise skeptical, unsuspecting people on a little emotional ride. And the next thing you know, you're going along with all kinds of crazy shit. You're like, yes, it's all got to go. I want to love God. I want to, you know, because who doesn't want that? What you said reminds me of this wonderful essay by one of my favorite writers named Gia Tolentino. She's a young writer for The New Yorker. And she had a book of essays that came out uh, two years ago called Trick Mirror. And in the book um, is an essay called Religion and Ecstasy. So Gia grew up in a Pentecostal home in Houston and, you know, understands those ecstasies, was there in those services when, you know, you're filled with these energies and these sort of visions. Um, and after she finished college and lost her faith, she found herself gravitating to the drug ecstasy you know, in her early years in Brooklyn as a way that could replace the feelings and the kind of warmth and the sense of kind of deep community that she felt in those Pentecostal spaces, but now in these kind of, you know, club, secular club spaces in Brooklyn. And I, I you know, I think that is something that, you know, um, with friends of mine who fell into addiction, that, you know, was very much a part, if not the central part of their journey is, you know, what, yeah, that, that, that even that evangelical subculture confronts us and immerses us in, in, in these passions and energies and, and and what do we do when 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 we when we've left it's a big empty space and i have really you know to this day i on sundays you know i i grieve in some form less now than maybe five years ago <laughs> you know the sense of togetherness and community that i I once felt the church. My journey through being in church, leaving church, being in church. So I left the church when I was 18 and our podcast listeners have heard this. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to go deep into it. Came back at uh, about nine years ago, tried it again, left it again. Um, but it's so built into who I am because it was so ingrained in me 
So you have this, okay, so I, I'm someone who's probably already prone to some form of anxiety and depression, right? I, but I, of course, I don't understand, I don't know it. And then like this, these highs and lows from these like, like church camp or anything where it just gives yeah. you this, like this big high and then there's a the big low. So you have these manic moments, right? Where you're really, really yeah. high, really, really low. So I leave the church. I'm good. I'm good. You know, being, you know, on, on most days I consider myself a universalist, if not an atheist, right? There's days where I'm like, I, I can't be a universalist because I don't even believe there's a God. Mm-hmm. But there's those moments, right, where you're driving in your car and you're going somewhere, or you're sitting in your house, and your brain says, "What if it was all true? Mm-hmm. Everything they taught us. What if it is all true?" And I have just fucked myself over. I mean, I'm on that path. I, I've 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 left the little road. I've, I've gone on to the expressway to hell. And so you have those moments where you sit there and it happens to me more often than not when I'm driving to work for some reason where I'm like, oh shit, I'm, I'm, I messed up. Everything they said is probably true. I'm living this crazy lie and I'm, I'm completely lost. I so totally get that. And after, you know, years, not, you know, much of a lifetime in therapy and then working out as a as a professor of theology in my teaching and writing, a theological framework that I think is more robust, more humane, uh, more generous, and avoids most of these perverse lessons that we learned as children. I still will have a flicker of 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 a fear. Now, what it, what if when I die, I am funny. I, I do wake up and find myself in hell. What if there is a hell? Like I still that 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 imaginative space of of eternal torment, which was created in my mind, but also in some kind of you know sealed with some kind of biochemical glue, right? <laughs> you know still active and that really pisses me off yeah yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> you know, I, you know, it's like i i've mustered up mountains of theological arguments and therapeutic clarifications and analyses of all of that but it's still it's still not it still kind of flickers. Yeah, it's there. I mean, it's always sort of there. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. And I, you know, I feel like t- to some extent that that little flicker will always be there somewhat. I mean, you can't, you can't escape. I can't escape anyway, 40 years of upbringing. <laughs> just, no. Now, mind you, I'm, 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 I'm galaxies away from where I used to be. Um, couldn't pay me enough to go back. I'm totally fine with all that. But yeah, there's, uh, and honestly, and I, I, don't I, don't think, I, yeah, I, I don't think there's anything like I, I am not. I, I am really skeptical of the language of redemptive suffering. Though I understand, within certain emancipatory movements and the civil rights movement, it, the discourse and the, the idea has an ennobling function. So I don't want to, you know, look at my story and eight years, for example, of untreated mental torment as a helpful lesson. But I do think that the wounds that we incur are replete with meaning 
and with creative possibility. Yeah, I mean, if, to me, if there's anything redemptive about any of it, so some of the stuff that my wife and I have gone through with, with we had a daughter that fell really ill several years ago, and we, anyway, that it was bad. It was a bad deal. It was a, it was a time that was um, really difficult for us, for our whole family, um, watching her not, we didn't think she was going to survive. And so she was 19 years old when she got sick and all of, you know, all of a sudden, you know, oh, you go with all the permutations of, okay, well, everything we had hoped for this child is now not going to happen. And even if she recovers, we're not sure she'll fully recover and those things aren't going to happen. I tell you what it did though. And again, again, to find some sort of meaning in all of that, I became a much more sympathetic person towards people who are suffering. I lost all of my bullshit religious glib responses to someone's loss or tragedy um, yeah. I did not try to help them find meaning in all of it. Um, but I learned how to sit with people and just grieve with them. And, and that's, that is, so that, 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 that's, a, that's about presence. It's about like a certain kind of listening. And uh, it's also about, isn't it, correct me if I'm wrong, Nat, it's also about having the patience to let a language emerge from this particular situation. Yeah, and not not trying to force some other vocabulary onto it that's not suited to it. So I think think you're onto something there. I think that's exactly right. And I think that is what I found to be most healing about the the, the therapeutic exchange is um, that, you know, in, 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 in my opinion, the best sorts of clinical settings you know, the, the analyst or the therapist is not imposing a vocabulary or a set of ideas on the analyzand or the individual there, but is a, an empathetic and skilled listener mm-hmm. who allows, you know, for whatever the the rate is for the $50 session. <laughs> allows that to emerge there, right? Exactly. Yeah, for me, you know, because I've only, I've been in therapy now for about six months, right? I've been on medication a little bit longer, and the, it took me about four sessions, four or five sessions, to realize that this person was actually there, not necessarily to fix me, right? Even though that's what our that's you know, I think any of us who end up in therapy, our first thought is I'm going to go there so they can fix me. Yeah, and I'm not saying that that's not a, a noble um, outcome. But what I have come to realize is this is created for me a safe space to finally tell my story with no judgment, uh, maybe giving me some tools like coping mechanisms on how, you know, next time this happens, you know, this is what you could try this instead. It sounds, and trust me, for you, I would, the, the idea of going into therapy sounded horrific. I didn't trust therapists because of my past, right? Yeah, we were told the, not the to. church. The church says that you know, at best, go talk to your pastor, right? Yikes. And they they have some kind of knowledge that will help you through these situations, which is usually pray it away, read your Bible, you know, all that crap, right? Which never works. And I'm sorry for those people who think it does. It doesn't work. It might work for a little bit. It's not going to work long term. It just won't. So what therapy did for me was give me permission to tell my story which then gives me permission to then come home and tell my story to the people I was afraid to tell it to. Mm. And then what medication has done has slowed, it doesn't make it go away, it's still there, 
I just had it. My son just graduated from high school. The, just the thought of having to prepare and go to this place and sit around a bunch of people that I don't know for a situation that I'm not in control of scared the living shit out of me. Cause that's, that's my anxiety, right? It's just not being, not being able to know what's going on next. But it gave me the, the ability or it gives me the ability to silence some of that, to, 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 to quiet it a little bit. So I can then say, okay, this is what's going on in my brain right now. Okay. Can you talk? Can you talk yourself through this? Can you show yourself? Look for the outcome. Cause this is what I've told my therapist is like 99.9% of the time when I go into a situation that's, that scares the shit out of me to the point where my anxiety is so high that I, I lash out at people. I say mean things. I do stupid things. 99.9% of the time at the end of that, I look back and I'm like, what a, what a fun time I had. What a good time that was. If I could get through it. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to tell the story and Nat's not going to like to hear this, but I'm going to tell it anyway. So Nat asked me to, I can't, I'm um, not going to listen. Uh, Nat asked me to officiate his, his, my, my niece's wedding, which I wholeheartedly wanted to do. And then it, I said yes. And then I had to do it. I spent a week with my brother and his family and I can't tell you what we did. Mm. I have, very little memory of that time because I was so scared that I was going to fuck it up, that I was going to be the reason that the wedding didn't work out right, that everyone was going to hate me. They were going to, they were going to, I mean, every single thing that you can tell yourself, right, about how horrible of a person you are, that you're no good, you, all of that came. This is obviously pre, pre-therapy, pre-medication and all mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And so I was just thinking about this the other day. I have like almost no memory of that week. Cause I was so caught up in my own brain that I couldn't, I couldn't allow myself to be in the moment. And that is all stems from this trauma of you're never good enough. You're never going to be good enough. Um, God hates you because you have sinned against him so many times. You're, you're lucky he's even going to ever let you back into whatever good graces you have. Yeah. Right. But yeah. therapy for those of people who think it's, it's, like me, that think it can't work, it absolutely can help you. It absolutely can. Yeah. I know, I, that, that's such a familiar story. And um, thank you for sharing that. And I've, I've been there and I've also, I, I've also been in, in a, 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 sort of an, an analogous place. And it's pre-therapy, pre-medication, <laughs> receiving an invitation to something that seems truly exciting, something right. that yep. you know, promises growth and expansion. I remember once years ago when I got an invitation to give a lecture in Amsterdam. And I'd been to Amsterdam as a 12-year-old in 1970, and it was like Vanity Fair. You know, it was like so exciting. <laughs> and uh, and, um, and I, I accepted the invitation immediately. And then all the terrors of what might happen to me if I went to Amsterdam that were related to my desires to actually do a bunch of crazy stuff in Amsterdam, you know? (laughs) Um, And I just became completely immobilized. And that was one of the situations that led me of a morning, eight years after this first anxiety attack, to just walk in for the first time to student mental health in my university and say, hey, I need help. 
And the, the attending nurse said, well, let me just ask you a couple of questions. Are you on cocaine? <laughs> and I said, no, I'm not on cocaine. I'm just on really bad Christianity. <laughs> I'm terrified that I'm going to go to Amsterdam and sin. Right. Um, so yeah. like, you'd be better off with the coke, dude. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> Just that. Take this little baggie with you. Give it straight in the morning. <laughs> oh my goodness! And there was no talk, but there was also you know medication that would calm, that would address my overcharged nerve, uh, central nervous system, and enable me to be, you know to, to to do the work, to be steady in the moment. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. For me, it just it allowed me to, for whatever reason, because when I get my anxiety level gets to the point where I can't control it, it's uh, I am no longer in charge of what comes out of this mouth at all. Some of the most hateful, hurtful things I've ever said has been in those moments. I can hear it coming out of my mouth, and I can't stop it. So what the medication has done is given me that ability to like come to a point where I'm like I'm about to say something really stupid. I, it's 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 right there, and it gives me that it gives me that moment to take a breath. And here's the thing that made me that I, I was thinking about when when you were telling your story, John, the, the power of the therapeutic exchange has to do with this new and awakening language. So I thought, word made flesh, and I also thought of how, as evangelicals growing up in the subculture, as children we become so attentive and triggered by words, by language. You know, for me, it was living in the fear of a rebuke, the pastoral rebuke, which uh, was de- devastating, or it was certain languages. And so it's, 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 it's therapy is, is about really experiencing the incarnational energies and healing energies of word made flesh and being in a place where a new, richer language, you know, unfolds over time. Yeah, let me let me let me book in that story because there is a part that you know, I, I I also need Nat to hear is that the day of the wedding. I remember the whole wedding. I remember all of it. It's the time up to it, you know, the dread side, right? Where uh, am I going to mess up? Am I going to mess up? Am I going to mess up? I remember the whole day, and the whole day is beautiful. Everything about that day in my mind is, 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 is solid and awesome. Yeah. And the only guy that messed up was the groom <laughs> who thought he could memorize his vows and, uh, could oh, not. No, that never works. It never works. We all told him it didn't work. Yeah. We said, write it down. And he was like, no, nah, I got this, bro. No, you don't got this. So, John, do you think, and that maybe you could respond to this, that you're, fear and anxiety were observable in those days before the wedding to others? I don't know. They were not. And my guess would be that John John has dealt with this issue his whole life, and he's become fairly adept at functioning normally, or at least appearing to function normally, because that's not something you want to wear on your sleeve when you walk out in public or you go engage with folks. So, and that's also part of that religious mechanism, isn't it? Where, where we, you know, we, we constantly feel like we're under scrutiny for how we, how we appear to others. And God, God forbid you, you ever look like you don't have your shit together. I felt, I felt this, this, this kind of paralysis in the first years of, of, of my teaching vocation. I would just manically write out every word of 
the lectures that I gave in classes, you know, and just cleave to the written word like my life depended on it. And then, you know, at some point, I just thought, you know, fuck it. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I can, I can, I can bomb and life is going to go on. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And just giving yourself permission to, to not just bomb, but just be average or, you know, yeah. get through the work. But, you know, the sense that we have to always shine for the kingdom. Oh, my God. Well, here's a good question. Here, I'll, I'm going to ask Nat this question. And All so right. this will uh, go off of what you just said. When you write your notes for your sermon, about how many pages is it? Eight or nine. When I was when I was preaching, my sermons, the, the the notes that I wrote would be somewhere between fifteen and twenty, because I wrote down every single word that I was mm. going to say. Mm. In the beginning, I, it, it did get easier over time, but in the beginning, I was like, I can't forget anything I want to say. So, I mean, almost word for word, yeah. what I was did saying, I was written down. Did you, did you try to memorize that that fifteen word manuscript before you got into the book? I would read it, and you know, I'm, I'm a theater guy, so I would. Mm. Um, so I would sit and I would read it and read it and read it and read it. So it would, I would hope that it would come off more natural. But mm-hmm. I, I wasn't to the point where I memorized it, but I definitely had read it so many times that when I looked down, I kind of knew where it was going. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was almost, almost always word for word what I was saying. And I think and, that, that I think part of this has to do again with that element of trust. Right. I mean, certainly we have to develop certain competences, competencies right. in our field. But at some point, we also have to learn to trust in our our skills, our training, our experience, right? Just to uh, to, to 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 be clear and to get the work done. And I think my obsessive, you know, need to write every word of every lecture for year after year after year was was, was about just not trusting my own instincts. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. I, I I worked with a, I actually worked for a pastor once who literally wrote his sermons out verbatim. He had a really really good like you'd look at his notes and it was really formatted. Things were you know like quotes were highlighted a different color and you know story. But he could he would he would do three services a weekend. They would not deviate. Like you would you could I could drop you in the middle of one to the other. And, but he also had this really good ability to read like he was reading off a teleprompter almost. You never knew he was reading from a script. Um, and I was like, wow, that's pretty effective. But all of that being said, there's so much of what we do that's like we, we, we keep saying is sort of baked into what to, to our culture. And that translates over into everything. It translates over into anytime you take a risk. Um, yeah. And especially if you're taking, so my wife and I opened a business last year. Um, and there's, you know, it's successful. It's doing well, you know, but there's, still, mm-hmm. there's this part of me that says, why do people keep showing up? Yeah. Like, or I'm, or I'm just happy that they did. Oh my gosh, people actually like showed up to the coffee shop today. You know, if I have a bad day at the shop and we have a down day, I, I go, okay, well, all right, well, it was bound to happen. This is, they, they've all figured out I'm a fraud. <laughs> you know, and there's that whisper, you know, what, what Meg would call, what is she, a, a, a limiting belief is how she would put it to me. Um, that, that creeps in and when you least suspect it and go, you know, allows you to discount on some on some level all of the success and it can all be sort of wiped away by one or two failures you go well out of and it's just Absolutely. it's a big cycle to get in so i don't know man we we could talk to you for hours dude this you know so I, I have to i have to say one thing i discovered in 
my research for this book. It's a, it's a kind of a throwaway a throwaway idea, but it was uh, it, it 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 brought me great amusement, and it was it was a a diagnosis of a certain phobia that I found in a an encyclopedia of phobias, and it's a phobia called homilophobia, H O M I L O. P-H-O-B-I-A, homil, like homiletics, and it's the fear of sermons. It's a phobia (laughs) that is triggered by sermons, and it's a a time. So I think if if nothing else uh, was learned in my writing of this book, it's that my own kind of, minefield of anxiety which is which is often ex- so heightened on a sunday morning in anticipation of like some word from the sermon that's going to trigger something is a right. clinical diagnosis yeah <laughs> fear of sermons phobia of sermons i think i have that phobia in spades um, not even <laughs> have a fear of listening to them and, and, and very often a fear of delivering them. So uh, I certainly don't want to have to endure anybody else's sermons. Um, that's, it actually, got, we, we started off before we started recording talking about this, this, this TikTok video, um, that was put out by, by our, a former colleague of mine. And that was what got me thinking about some of the stuff was because it had to do with with calling out what he called the false prophets of depression and anxiety and addiction. And he was over-spiritualizing all of these things. Um, but this is the same guy that when my associate pastor's kid uh, was in his young adult group and confided in him that she had was suffering from clinical depression, he essentially told her she just needed to pray more and just needed to try harder. Um, now, she had the wherewithal to go to leave and say, well, that's terrible advice. Thanks for that. But a lot of people don't have that. You know what I'm saying? Lot, that, be, that needs to be called out as abuse no less serious than sexual or physical. On 100%. 100%. Because then, they, you know, because what, what, what kills me then is if, if, that, if that person confides, right, goes to their spiritual authority, who they think has some spiritual authority, they confide in them something serious like this. They're given bad, glib advice. And then they do something harmful to themselves. What that pastor is inevitably going to do is, is, is blame them anyway. He won't take any, I, I doubt very much he would take any of, the, of that, of the onus upon himself for, they say, well, well, we told her to pray. She clearly, you know, it, it, it drives me bonkers. Um, one thing that, that I committed to do when I did take on this, this role of pastor in this little church was like, I will never dispense mental health advice. I am not a mental health professional. I will absolutely pray with people. I will absolutely listen if they want to talk. And then I will direct them to the best of my ability to good resources. You know, like I'm, I'm just... Yeah, I'm I mean, that, from, from everything I've, I've gleaned about your um, theology and your, your pastoral uh, vision, uh, your sermons would offer an, an antidote to the uh, homophobia <laughs> diagnosis. I, I certainly do hope so. Um, but they're also usually full of, you know, expletives and, uh, you know. <laughs> I, I actually, I, I think I said something. way back. So I think I said something a couple weeks ago. I said, this is, I was talking about some theology that I thought was, I was just, ba- I said, well, that's just batshit crazy. I'm like, oh. <laughs> Oh, I said it, and I meant it. I ain't taking it back neither. It is that <laughs> shit crazy, people. We got to get off this, this, you know. 
So it's, uh, it is liberating. That's one of the reasons <laughs> that I decided to go my own way. Cause I'm like, I just can't, I would have gotten fired from my previous church for saying, that, you know, and not, and not because they disagree with me theolog- theologically, but because I would have uttered, you know, a, pro- a profanity a from the pulpit. You know, oh I, gosh, I, mean, you know? I, I just, blessings on, on this ministry. I am so grateful to know you're doing the, the, the Lord's work in, in this place. And um, I appreciate that, man. Yeah, this has been such a encouraging time. I really love you guys, and I don't really know you, but I just love you for what you're doing, and and for your heart, and and for you know creating space for these stories. This is this has just been a real blessing. Yeah, uh, likewise. I, yeah, the work you're doing is super super important. I'm always interested in when people are willing to address topics like this that I think have been woefully either ignored or just mistreated by the church at large. And so, man, anytime we have a chance to have someone like you want to talk about these things and it, it helps because every, every listener, I, I hope there's, you know, I know there will be people who listen to this who go, okay, that's my story. I have that story too. Oh, and so that's, 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 that's the beautiful part of it. Right. Yeah. And sadly more, more than, more than we, more than we know. But I hope that, you know, as fellow travelers, we can, we can bring those people to your work and, and to this book. Thank you, brothers. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.